Welcome back to the Present History Podcast. Just a quick little trigger warning for this episode. We do touch on topics such as sexual assault and abuse, rape and inappropriate sexual relationships. But do enjoy this episode of the Present History Podcast. Welcome to the Present History Podcast. We've got a very special episode today. I'm here with Grace and we'll be chatting around the topic of uh, Catherine Howard, the maligned queen. We're both uh, members of the uh, Public History Masters Programme at Royal Holloway University of London and we're just massive fans of history so we wanted to chat about this but would you like to introduce yourself a little bit tell us a little bit about yourself of course yeah my name is grace as zach was saying i am a fellow classmate in his <laughs> master's program i am originally from the united states if you couldn't already tell <laughs> from my accent so i've always been a huge massive fan of british history and particularly the tutors so it's been really amazing being here and being able to, you know, be in the world where these people came from. Absolutely. Absolutely. What was that kind of like coming here and being kind of almost immersed in that history that you are a, a fan of? Yeah, I mean, total nerd trip. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the first time, um, I mean, I had been to England before mm. in 2016, right before I went to university and so I got to go to Hampton Court and the Tower of London. Nice. But coming back, it was very special for me to once again get to see it all. I've always been really into the buildings that are from the past, really getting to, you know, nerd out a little bit. Yeah. Where you get to walk up the stairs and be like, oh, wow, Henry VIII touched this banister. Or maybe. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> or a version of this. And, you know, going to the Tower, like, wow, Anne Boleyn was staying here or she was beheaded right here like yeah. things like that that are just so unique and so special that we have in america but not as old yeah <laughs> oh, sure so it's it's pretty impressive to see things that are from the 1500s that mm. we didn't have buildings really by yeah. that point <laughs> and so and nothing exists from back then either in the u.s so yeah. it's been very special and most weekends are spent traveling around and oh, good. seeing all good. of the the historic sites that I possibly can while I'm here yeah no that's that's fantastic and you kind of have a special interest in the Tudor period yes um with especially the wives of <laughs> King Henry VIII um what kind of birthed that in in you or, <laughs> or what where did that kind of come from yes yeah, I mean it's a good question um we don't learn about it in school right. like I would assume most of your British audience probably did. Yeah. I didn't really know much about them early on. I did read a book probably when I was around nine or ten called Mary Bloody Mary. Yeah. And it was about Mary the First. That sort of sparked an interest, but not an obsession. I would say really the the tutor obsession that I have now started probably when I was around 14. Right. Yeah, and I, I found on YouTube... Um, episodes or sort of clips from the Tudors, the TV series. Yes. Yeah. Which I probably should not have been watching at that age. <laughs> um, my mom did not know. Yeah. <laughs> but I was hooked. I got obsessed with that show. I watched these montages that they would make on YouTube for all the different wives and all of their different clips nice. in the series. And 
Catherine Howard was in that show. And they actually had, at least in the U.S., there was a doll company that made these little miniature dolls that no sort way. of went with the Tudors. Wow. And Madame Alexander dolls are what they're called. And they're sort of these collectible dolls. And my God, I wanted one so bad. <laughs> I, they were beautiful. And I, I wanted the Catherine Howard one. She had the prettiest dress <laughs> out yeah. of all of the dolls. Yeah. And... I never got one, <laughs> but, oh, no. but I did, I wanted one. And I, ever since when I started watching that show, anytime I would go to the library, I would try to find a book on the Tudors, um, right. started reading Alice and Weir, but also reading all of the fiction that I could find. I'm a huge fan of historical fiction. Mm. So it really started from there. I would say it was later than a lot of my other history obsessions, right. it was sort of a, a later start than you know the other things that i really focus on and i'm quote-unquote obsessed with (laughs) yeah no that's fantastic that's really really interesting maybe you can get one of the dolls now i mean (laughs) i've looked they're on ebay now okay okay, there you go there you go um yeah some of the stuff that you mentioned there about Catherine howard and the way she's portrayed Mm -hmm. in media is something that we will come back to Mm -hmm. um because i think that's a fascinating kind of aspect of of her um but you know, in terms of Catherine Howard, mm-hmm. she kind of has this bit of a weird kind of reputation does, in yeah. in modern thought. Because um, either she's this victim of, mm-hmm. of everything happening to her, or she's this kind of very active kind of, I don't know what word to use. I mean, you could use... It's been Plenty. used on her slut has been yes, used before. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So things like that. She kind of has this kind of dual image that mm-hmm. we can't really decide. Yeah. Um, and where do you think that comes from? Can you give us a bit of a background to to Catherine <laughs> Howard and and? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I can give you historical context as well as sort of her legacy's Great. context. But um, for Catherine herself, we actually aren't sure when she was born. That is something that is still debated to this day from by historians. Uh, she was not, quote-unquote, important enough at that point right. for it really to be recorded. So there is this ginormous span of 1519 to 1525 where really they placed she was born somewhere in there. Right. <laughs> which, you know, Catherine's story would be portrayed very differently depending on which end of that mm. she was born into. You know, she would be either very, very young or actually older. And sort of more more appropriate, but most agree that it was probably closer to 1525, which would put her in her late teens when she went to the Tudor court. But she was a child of the Howard family, which were some of the most important and influential families in the Tudor court at the time. They were the Dukes of Norfolk, and they as some people have said when we've talked about the Howards, they they really breed like rabbits. (laughs) They have huge families. And she was a child of Edmund Howard, who was one of the many sons of the current Duke of Norfolk. And he was a younger son. So as is the case back then and until fairly recently, if you had multiple sons, your first one got the title, got the money. Right. Edmund Howard was not that. And so she actually grew up relatively poor in the aristocratic term (laughs) and her mother died when she was very young and her father was extremely debt-ridden and so she was actually sent to live with her step-grandmother the dowager duchess and that's sort of where 
her story that we know so commonly began was at that home, which it was very common at the time for young girls, young aristocratic girls to be sent to different family members or maybe even complete strangers that were higher up in the social stratus and they would have been able to educate the girls but also get them into advantageous marriages. Right. Yeah, and and boys as well. It wasn't just girls that would do this. So while it was her step-grandmother, there were multiple other girls and boys who lived at the house. And it was very loosely run. Um, The Dowager Duchess was not known for being a very aware (laughs) um, person who was helping raise these children. And so it was actually very common. They would sleep in large dormitories and they would attempt to keep them separate by locking the doors at night. But some of the girls, we do believe Catherine may have been a ringleader in this, found where the keys were and would actually unlock the doors at night. And wow. yeah, and yeah. boys would come in and join them, yeah. usually for picnics and lots of other things that they would start to do. She, We do know that she had two relationships before going to the Tudor court at this house. The first one was with Henry Mannix, who was her music teacher. She was because we don't know when she was born, around 13 or 14 maybe, and he was in his 20s. And we do know there there was a romance there, but we don't believe it ever went past into actual intercourse. But she did have a relationship a few years later with a man named Francis Derham. And he was also older than her, but not too much by this point. And we do believe that she had consummated that relationship. And they would call each other husband and wife, which at the time is partly where she gets into trouble later, is that in Tudor times, if you referred to someone as your husband in front of witnesses and then you had sex, you were technically married. Right, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And so she would later claim that that wasn't the case, that's not what she meant, she was just doing it for fun. But by Francis's perspective, they were married by that point. And... That sort of fell apart and ended right around the time she ended up going to court, which was in 1540. And her uncle, the Duke of Norfolk, now by this point, was able to find her position as a lady-in-waiting for Henry VIII's newest wife, Anne of Cleves. Right. And she had not arrived in England yet, but she was coming. They had been without a queen for quite a while um, because of Jane Seymour passing away. And so this was an opportunity for a lot of young girls uh, to find a position and once again was a place for them to get advantageous marriages through the court. You really wanted one of these positions. It was highly sought after. And of course, the Duke of Norfolk being one of the most powerful men at court, he was able to secure this position for Catherine. We aren't sure if he knew about her past, but we do know that she arrived in court sort of fresh like a clean slate she was going to start new possibly find a good marriage her grandmother knew about her previous relationships but no one's really sure how much the duke of norfolk knew by this point but she did become a lady in waiting Anne of cleves arrived most of you probably know if you're english that it didn't go too well (laughs) yeah yeah uh henry didn't like her but she probably didn't like him But it was also at this time that his sort of eye fell on Catherine. And 
to sort of give you an idea, you know, time had, had not been kind to Henry VIII by this point in his life. When he came to the throne in the early 1500s, he was praised pretty much universally for his attractiveness, for his intelligence, for his athleticism. He was really just like this paragon of beauty and sort of the ideal Christian king yeah. at the time. By 1540, <laughs> Henry was in his late 40s. He was nearing sort of the infamous Holbein portrait that we have of him. He was over overly obese. He had this horrible ulcer on one of his legs from a riding accident. And some contemporaries wrote that it actually would smell. Oof. Yeah. Oof. So, so you can imagine that was not the ideal suitor for a young girl, probably in her late teens by this wow. point. Yeah. Catherine, while we don't have any sort of agreed upon portraiture of Catherine, we do from contemporaries believe that she was extremely petite and very fair and had sort of brownish blonde hair. But you can imagine also Henry VIII being notoriously tall, being notoriously tall and overweight, this tiny, petite little teenager is pretty mm. revolting now <laughs> to awful. imagine. Yeah. I mean, I think that even for the time, it was a little shocking. I mean, there were huge age gaps in marriage by this point. Although it, it is a little less common to see very young people marrying that I think a lot of people assume that, you know, the images of these like 12 or 13 year olds getting married, yeah. which wasn't actually as common they may have been betrothed or promised at that age but usually a relationship wasn't consummated until they were much older so i think for a lot of people this would have been a bit of a disturbing image although there was usually a little leniency given to kings because right. they did need heirs and they did need to marry younger women who were able to produce children and by all images, Catherine probably appeared to be ideal <laughs> for producing many children. She was of the Howard clan, they had a lot of kids, and she was very young so and beautiful. So Henry VIII was a sucker for a really attractive yeah. woman. <laughs> so that pretty much started his infatuation. It pretty much started around the time when Anne of Cleves arrived. Right. And within six months... He had annulled his marriage to Anne of Cleves and married Catherine. So it was very rapid. Once again, by this point, we don't believe that her uncle knew about her past. And so there may not have been a, sort of a trick going on or even an intention on the Duke of Norfolk's part to marry her to the king. This may have been just fate <laughs> the king happened to see her and you sort of ride on on the wave of favor in that moment rather than some well thought out plan that had been in the works for months yeah so that's sort of her origin story up until the point of when she met henry and mm. sort of unexpectedly became queen that's often not talked about too much but does her relationships that she had in her childhood come up obviously later on yeah. in her downfall but <clears throat> for Catherine her early years as queen or her early months sorry as queen were relatively successful she was sort of the ideal 
bride, especially for Henry. She didn't seem to have any strong political leanings either way. Her family, the Howards, were well known to be conservative and leaning a little more towards Catholicism. But it doesn't appear that Catherine had any strong views either way, sure. which was ideal. And especially for Henry, who, who didn't like, especially after Anne Boleyn, did not like wives who sort of challenged him or appeared more intelligent than him. Yeah. And so to have this woman who sort of just looked pretty on his arm and was gracious and kind and beautiful was sort of ideal in the moment and really was what he was looking for. Yeah, and she she kind of ended up with that kind of saying of like no other will no but other his. Will but his yes. Yeah, that kind of thing as well. So. Yeah, that was her motto. Yeah. Smart lady. <laughs> <laughs> Smart lady to come up with that one. Yeah. Um, they all came up with pretty great mottos mm. in the end. But that sort of was her intention, was to just sort of be there and en enjoy the fact that she was queen out of nowhere. But, you know, as, as we now know, it, it all did come crashing down around her pretty rapidly. I mean, before the disillusion of her marriage people would say that he was in love with her more than any of the others the french ambassador at the time uh charles de marillac said that he caresses her more than he caresses the others or caressed the others which once again is sort of gross from a modern yeah. standpoint to imagine that especially that image of him being this like massive massive guy and, overweight yeah. older he was in his 40s but looked more into his late 50s by this point so yeah, it's it's a little sickening to imagine that, mm. but people really were the he saying that this was going to be his his love match in the end. Like he had finally, I mean, Jane Seymour was arguably, but Catherine Howard was going to be the next great yeah. love of his life. But her downfall, I mean, came like I said very rapidly and really came from a rumor. It was a one rumor from one source that really ended up being the end for her. There was a girl that grew up in the same dormitory as Catherine and her brother said, you know, why don't you go work for the queen? You can be lady in waiting. It will be great for our family. And sort of offhandedly, she was like, I'm the queen has loose morals. I don't want to live in a household like that. That's not like, I would rather not work for the queen because she, I know all these stories about her past and she proceeds to tell her brother all of these things. I mean, Lesson number one, I think, from the Tudor era, don't tell your brothers anything. <laughs> because oftentimes yeah. these rumors came about because women would tell their brothers something and their brothers would then go tell. <laughs> wow, right, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, even Anne Boleyn's downfall was sort of begun through a rumor similar to that, that, you know, a woman said, oh, you, you think I'm bad, you should see the Queen's household. <laughs> wow. The rest is history. But this rumor was sent to the court and it was sent to Archbishop Cranmer who was sort of the highest church official at the time he <laughs> sort of copped out and wrote a letter and left it on Henry VIII's seat at chapel on November 1st 1541 so he, he didn't tell Henry to his face <laughs> yeah. he left this letter that sort of detailed all of these rumors probably a safe idea for him as well yes yeah. uh, especially knowing what Henry's reaction was in the end right I mean at first he was furious uh, he thought that this was 
someone trying to ruin his wife's reputation. It was someone trying to bring her and her family down. He was, he wanted to find who had started this rumor. And he said to Cranmer, like, look into this, but look into it very quietly. I don't want anyone to know that this is being investigated. And so at first, I think he really did believe that it wasn't going to be true. <laughs> yeah. And then it did, it started to come out, uh, especially Mannix and Darum, their stories came back that, you know, Mannix had told someone that he knew of this secret mark that was on Catherine's body. Darum was going around telling people that he was married to Catherine, that they had said that they were husband and wife. And by this point, when Catherine is confronted with it, she does confess to those two relationships. Her confessions change over time as sort of her desperation becomes more apparent but originally she does confess and henry leaves hampton court and is never catherine never sees him again that sort of henry's mo is to just leave remove himself right and never speak to the woman again it happened with catherine of aragon it happened with anne boleyn it happened with anna cleves and now it happened with catherine howard that yeah, he sort of just removes himself and surrounds himself with others that are sort of dripping the, the poison into his ear. And that's usually the first indication for his wives that something's wrong. <laughs> yeah, it's not going to end too well no, if he leaves. not, not yeah. if he leaves. And so Darum was arrested as well, and he was tortured, and he also confessed. We're not really sure, or I'm not really sure, but Henry Mannix appears to sort of just get off and right. maybe it was that he hadn't consummated his relationship with ha Catherine or maybe it was just that it was longer before Darum was making more trouble about it like he was yeah. getting in people's faces but the the damning part for Catherine really came during this interrogation you know in an attempt to save himself Francis says you know I I'm not having a relationship with Catherine anymore because someone has supplanted me in her affection aka this man named thomas culpepper right and that was sort of the the next level of bad news for catherine that there's this claim that she had had a relationship or is having a relationship with someone during her marriage right to the king she was already in trouble for the francis Durham relationship but there's just a different whole different level to it if this is true and so Culpepper is, is arrested. He was very close to Henry. He was one of his servants. He was known for treating Henry's leg when it would act up. So he was well known to Henry when I can imagine when this came to him, this was like a, a double blow because he knows Thomas Culpepper. The interesting thing is because oftentimes it's sort of accepted that Catherine probably was guilty but what we don't really talk about or think about is that both she and Culpepper till the end maintained their innocence and maintained that they had not slept together. There was an attraction between the two of them. They did acknowledge that they had met secretly, but they both claimed that they had never gone farther than talking and being alone, which for a Tudor queen at that point, that was enough. That was, yeah. that was enough. The statutes for 
the end of how she was tried was that there had been intention yeah. to commit adultery. It wasn't even that adultery had taken place. She was condemned by the intention for it. So both Darum and Culpepper were executed in December. Uh, Culpepper was beheaded, but unfortunately Darum had the traitor's death, so he was hung, drawn, and quartered. Wow. Yeah. Uh, we're not really... Well, Culpepper was higher up in society and usually the king would commute traitors deaths to beheading for people higher up in the social strata but i think one of the the more tragic parts of this story is that as catherine was being transferred to the tower they had already been executed by this time and their heads were on um, a bridge at that point left to rot and they purposefully took catherine's boat under that bridge so she was going towards her execution, mm-hmm. seeing, seeing these two guys, yeah. their heads on the bridge. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we, we there's many fictional portrayals of that moment. And, you know, it is it's heartbreaking to think of her having to see that. And, you know, also just her youth really comes out in her later months of her life is not only seeing that, but also the night before her death, she actually asked for the block to be brought to her room, which is one of the more famous parts of her story. And it's that, you know, when the person that she asked was shocked by this, she said that it's because she wanted to practice and she wanted to look queenly in her last moments. Because she's barely 20 at the time of her execution as well. So she's very, very young. Very young, very young. I mean... Most believe she may not have even been 21 by the time she died. And it is just tragic to think how young she was and especially how fast it all happened. Like it really, her rise and her fall were, I mean, in a matter of like a year or two, it was so fast. I mean, even the others, most of his other relationships were much longer uh, especially Anne Boleyn, the other wife that was executed. I mean, that stretched on for years. His marriage, not so much, but his relationship with her was very, very long. And with Catherine, it was sort of the rise was fast and the fall was fast. And sort of from there, she's been mainly for- forgotten or really maligned through yeah. the legacy that's come out of her story specifically. Mm. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's fascinating. And what's interesting as well is that Catherine Howard and, and Anne Boleyn, like you were saying, they, they yeah. often get compared, Yeah, which is interesting because they were, they were cousins as well. They were they first were, yeah. cousins and they're the two that got executed. And mm-hmm. it both of them have these kind of trials where yeah. they could be innocent, they could be guilty. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the time you have to do a lot of legal gymnastics to, to reach yeah. the result that they got. But it's fascinating um, that often they are so compared, even though they are mm-hmm. very different. What What do you think about that comparison? Yeah, I mean, I, I do think it's a very interesting comparison, especially in regards to, you know, Anne Boleyn. I mean, there's like the cult of Anne Boleyn. My God, people are obsessed with her. Yeah. But also there is a pretty predominant view that she was innocent, that none of the charges were true and... I mean, it's debated still. I mean, there are some historians that don't think that, but I would say majority of people believe that she was completely innocent and they feel very strongly and very passionately about that. And what's interesting is that 
Catherine is often the exact opposite, that it is sort of predominantly believed that she was guilty. And people feel passionately about that and believe that there isn't really room for discussion on whether she was or wasn't. It's sort of, you know, they're compared in that way of like Anne Boleyn, the innocent, and Catherine Howard, the one who wasn't. <laughs> like, yeah. oh darn, like that really sucks that, you know, Anne Boleyn had to take the fall first before Catherine. And I mean, even the comparison as well that Anne Boleyn has become sort of a feminist icon that she is praised by most for, you know, knowing her own mind, for being highly educated, and even for developing her own sexual ethic, regardless of the adultery charges, it was that she really did use her sexuality in a very intelligent, very forward-thinking way to obtain Henry VIII, where Catherine is really condemned for much of the same actions that, you know, she is viewed as, I mean, some people, Alison Weir, in her Six Wives of Henry VIII book, said that she was frivolous and empty-headed, um, David Starkey said that she was a good time girl and another historian, Alison Plowden, said she was a natural born tart. <laughs> right. So that is sort of the view, the predominant view of her of mm. like, oh yeah, like she was the one who did sleep around. She was sort of the whore that, not necessarily that anyone's arguing that she deserved to die, <laughs> but there is sort of this view of like, well, her guilt was deserved. It, right. She wasn't railroaded like Anne Boleyn was. She did do these things. And so that's sort of the really predominant common view. And only very recently has there been sort of a shift, especially with the introduction of the Me Too movement, of her being a victim of sexual assault. Right. There is sort of this acknowledgement that, I mean, if we are to believe the Henry Mannix story, she was 13, 14. And he was in his 20s. Like, by today's standards, that is illegal. By, the, by then, it wasn't. But still, it's people do argue that she was manipulated, that she had men constantly controlling her and pressuring her into sexual right. relationships. But I still think that, I mean, each perspective, whether horror victim or guilty or innocent, it really oftentimes comes down to her sexuality and treating her more as a sexual object that you know her other parts of her life aren't always looked at as much as this specific sexual part of her history yeah so you know i i think that that in itself is an issue either way that you know she is really the one of the six wives that's treated the most as this like sexual object mm. as most yeah pretty much out of all of the wives yeah it's mm. fascinating it's fascinating it was interesting i was listening to something with um gareth russell uh, yes. the other day as yes. well and his his book about Catherine howard was very interesting because he was mm -hmm. kind of leaning towards the idea that the, her previous relationships despite the guys being slightly older may not have been as abusive or as yeah. coercive as as people would like to make it out as they were yeah definitely i i would say i i agree with that the by today's standards absolutely it was yeah. sexually abusive but i think you know we we can't look at history from today's lens any kind of history but especially that far back it was a completely different world at that point 
by those standards of the day, she was old enough to be having these relationships, especially Mannix and Darum, their age difference wasn't that shocking in that day and age. And, you know, I, I don't, I do agree with Gareth Russell on that, that I don't think it was necessarily sexual abuse. It was gross by today's was, standards. Yeah, wholly inappropriate. Wholly inappropriate, yeah. but by the standards of that day and age it was not inappropriate yeah. other than the fact that she wasn't married yes. that's what made it yeah. inappropriate yeah. not her age yeah yeah no that is fascinating it's interesting this dichotomy that we've mm. got between her views um yeah. of whether she was this this kind of promiscuous frivolous mm. kind of stupid yeah. um woman yeah and on the other hand this this victim who everything has been against her and all right. that kind of stuff it's just a fascinating kind of way yeah. of looking at history um especially but especially in in light of of henry the eighth as well because she was yeah. his fifth wife mm-hmm. and it's interesting for me looking at the the wives of henry the eighth and something that i don't tend to think about is that the later wives they weren't just becoming wives yeah. They were becoming queens of England, and also they were having to inherit Henry's other children as well. Yes. So you've got Catherine Howard coming in, and she's having to deal with Mary the First later, Mary the First, yep. uh, and Elizabeth as well. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting; her and Mary didn't seem to get on no. too well at all. No, and I mean, not only was, were they also inheriting the children, but they were inheriting the legacies of yeah, the other wives. Like, of course. Catherine Howard, going into it, knew the story of Catherine of Aragon, knew the story of Anne Boleyn. And by this point, most people were saying that Jane Seymour died of neglect. And so all three of his first wives died under horrible circumstances. And so there's also that. The the latter part of the wives all knew exactly what had happened. And I mean, God bless Catherine Parr, who had to come in then after Catherine Howard as well. Yeah. But yeah, they, she did not get on with Mary the First. Mary the First was actually, or Princess Mary, or Lady Mary at the time, was older than her. <laughs> no way. Yeah. Wow. So, so there's also that awkwardness. That's that, very weird. I mean, you do see that today when older men marry younger women and they're children are older than the wives that's always a little (laughs) a little weird to wrap your head around yeah that yeah mary was older than catherine and i mean some fictional portrayals portray their relationship as intensely antagonistic i don't know if that's how it was i know that they didn't really like each other i mean mary's lifestyle was night and day different from catherine's and you know, Catherine was this, she enjoyed having a good time and she loved new gowns and she loved dancing and she wasn't particularly one way or the other on religion. And we know that Mary was intensely pious and, you know, there could have also been a part of her that did think it was a little weird and inappropriate that her father was with someone this young. So, you know, there were instances of them not getting along. We have it on record that, you know, Catherine thought that Mary wasn't showing her the right amount of respect. There was an instance where some of Mary's maids were taken away, sort of in retaliation for how she was treating Catherine. But they were eventually, some of them were returned. And, I mean, other than Mary, 
she did have a really good relationship with the other children. She didn't see Edward that much. He was kept mainly away from court. But we do believe that she had a closer relationship with Elizabeth. I mean, also in some fictional portrayals, they use Catherine Howard's death as sort of the impetus that makes Elizabeth decide not to marry. Right. We don't know if that was yeah. true. But by this point, Elizabeth <clears throat> was a, a little older and a little more aware of what was happening and would have watched this in a very sort of front row seat of seeing yeah. what happened to Catherine. So we can imagine that even if that wasn't the thing that turned Elizabeth yeah. into who she was, <laughs> it may have played a large part or at least played some part in, you know, her wariness of ever being married yeah. because she was close with Catherine, at least in the few months that she was queen yeah. as well. Well, thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Present History Podcast. But this was only half the conversation. Come back next week to hear all about Catherine Howard's portrayal in modern media and how that shifts and affects her legacy and where we, as historians and the public, should go from there. In the meantime, make sure to follow us on all social medias to keep up to date with all that we do and so you never miss an episode. And we will see you on the next episode of the Present History Podcast.